Hello, friends. I'm JP. And I'm Drew, and you're listening to the Broken But Beautiful podcast, where we talk about why church is still worth it. JP, what's up? Good to see you, man. Man, it's good to see you, too. I have really been excited about some of our previous episodes. The focus of this podcast is talking about church and church community and why that's worth it. And I think we've had some really great episodes that highlight unique ways that church can be community to people. We can often approach church and just say, it's this place I go, it's this place I attend, and I come and I get what I need and I leave. But people rely on church for so much more. And I'm really excited about our conversation today because it really highlights that church can be so much more than just going someplace and getting something you need. Yeah, in season two, we've been trying to look into some unique stories maybe some stories from the margins in terms of how church interacts with that. And I'm excited, Drew, to introduce you to my best friend, lifelong best friend, Travis Speck, and his wife, Kelly. I grew up with Travis. I don't, I don't actually don't remember a time in my life when Travis wasn't around. <laughs> we grew up going to church together. We played sports together. We sang in chorus together. We went to school together, ultimately went off to college together and where he met his wife and I met my wife as well. And we all hung out together in college and they've always been such a huge amount of support in my life. Travis is an administrator at the national Institute of health. Kelly is an accountant. And in this episode, they're going to talk about a new book they have coming out, which is primarily written by, by Kelly. Travis has a chapter in it as well. And the book is entitled hope in the heartache, a journey of grace and growth with a special needs child. Hmm. They have three children. They're primarily going to tell us the story of their oldest child, Bennett, who is 14 and has cerebral palsy. They're going to talk about his birth and kind of the sequence of the tragedy, what happened around his birth. He he might die, but then he doesn't die. And it's a miracle and, and God saves him. But yet he has this condition of cerebral palsy what is our life going to look like now that we're raising a child with special needs? And how does that, how does that shape the way they view so many things? And Drew, I got to be honest, watching them go through this opened up a world. I got to be honest, I didn't even know existed, you know? Yeah. And so it's going to probe a lot of conversations about how we process trauma and suffering, but also how we walk alongside people who may, we can look and say, that looks hard, but we haven't walked in their shoes, so how do we support them as they go through this? Yeah, I think about the people that I might see in public who walk around with children with special needs or with other family members, adults even with special needs. And you're right, my first initial reaction is typically, man, that looks hard. And then I don't do anything for, or yeah. think anything further beyond that. But today's conversation gives us a little bit of an insight into what kind of community these families need and maybe offer some advice for how we can support these kinds of families. And that will be the trajectory of the conversation, an unfiltered look at what they went through and how how some people did not walk with them well, but, but some people did and what that looked like. So excited about this episode uh, and invite everyone to listen. So we introduce you to Kelly and Travis Speck. Travis and Kelly, so excited to be hanging out with you guys for a few minutes. Thank you so much for having us, JP. We appreciate you so much. So great to be here, man. I've been excited for a while. 
when I saw on Instagram, Kelly, that you guys have this book coming out about the journey with your son, Bennett. And I feel like I, I lived some of this, but I'm so excited because there's parts of it that I'm like, oh, I never knew that side of it. And uh, it's quite a story. And it's a story that's opened up my eyes just to, you know, the types of people that really deal with these issues and then all the questions it begs in so many different ways. So I would just love to just listen as you as you tell this story and all the different directions that it goes. Yeah, thank you so much, JP. When Bennett, our oldest son, was first born, we were living in the Washington, D.C. area. And at that point, we, you know, we both had full-time jobs. We were saving for our first home, juggle it all, um, you know, just the way that kind of people do up here. And but we were away from all of our most of our college friends who we left behind in either Texas, Tennessee or kind of somewhere in the south. Um, Travis's family still in the Nashville area. My family is up here in the D.C. area. But we all of a sudden I went into labor and then um, it's the day of his birth came, which was August 20th, 2007. And pretty much our whole life changed on a dime. And we went started what began a um, traumatic birth, led to a traumatic and roller coaster NICU experience and a near-death experience and all of that, but we were away from everyone and all we had um, in these times of crisis or just pure devastation really was the prayers and the, and the sentiments, whether it be on the silly website that we started, you know, just holding us up. But that was beautiful was that we really never felt alone. Um, even though we were physically away from people like you and loved ones um, far away, just the prayers and encouragement that you guys gave us really completely sustained us. And looking back, I would say that was the body of Christ and all of its beauty is that we really, truly never fell alone. So your life is going a certain direction. And when we all hit that point, we're about to be parents. We feel like, oh, yeah, it'll go like this. It'll go like this. It'll go like this. You had it mapped out. And then events around his birth led to a very different experience. Walk us through his birth and maybe the first few months of what happened. Sure. Yeah. Just basically, um, he was full term. He wasn't a preemie. We knew we knew the day was coming and my water broke and we headed to the hospital and they, they said, he's not really looking that happy. We're going to do a C-section. And, I, and we, although we hadn't planned for that, we were like, okay. And pretty much the minute they um, prepped me and pulled him out of me, the room was completely silent. So it wasn't a screaming baby. Um, Travis was looking over the veil and um he could tell something wasn't right i obviously was laying flat not sure what was going on and they pretty much showed us our baby here's your son and ran out the door to the nicu and we being first-time parents didn't exactly know what was going on but basically what was going on was that his lungs were filled with pneumonia he was barely alive and they were going to take a look at him and see what needed to happen next and so so basically Bennett was born at one hospital and so they needed to transfer him immediately. So I was recovering from a C-section. They said, we're sending a transfer team right now. He needs to go and be put on this cooling blanket within the first like three hours. So we got to, we got to move. And so at that point, Travis was given the decision, like stay with my wife, follow my baby. Obviously we said, follow the baby. So um, I stayed to recover. And, you know, I think a really poignant thing you've always said, um, leaving the hospital following the ambulance, you know, that's carrying his newborn son. That's like an hour or two old. Yeah. Do you want to just kind of jump in from your perspective? Yeah. I mean, it was just, it was just hard to, it was just hard to know that that was, that was happening, <laughs> you know? So you just wanted to be with him. And I, I knew that, I guess at that moment, things were definitely going to change, you know, for forever. 
Um, I didn't know how, but you just get the sense that this is a new, you know, reality. Yeah. And then once Bennett got settled at the new hospital, it was touch and go to do that first night. And then by the time I finally was able to get transferred to that level four NICU where he was at, they said, um, he's not doing well. We need to put him on this uh, life support machine that would take out his blood, oxygenate it and put it back in his body. And I remember them telling us there's an 80% survival rate. You know, um, we, you know, we do this usually like one or two babies a month and, you know, most of them survive. And in the fog of my medicine and pain meds, I remember thinking 80% sounds good. And Travis, I remember coming to my room, just kind of looking at me like, we need to sign this paper. Like this is, this is our last option. So we signed this paper and, um, you know, at that point, Bennett was like one day old. And the next morning is when they, they put him on this, on ECMO, which at that point we were like, okay, let's do it. Cause thinking we've got an 80% chance of survival. That sounds great. But we had no idea what, you know, what we were getting into. Um, then with that, because he ended up being on ECMO much longer than the average baby does. Um, and when you're on that, you're, it includes everything, mostly blood thinners, just to keep to keep from blood clots happening. But that ended up um, just setting the scene for a really, really traumatic kind of gruesome experience because his lungs just were so sick that they just didn't get better as quickly as we would have liked. So by the end of like day 16 on ECMO, he um, he was not doing well. And we were met with a team of all the best top neonatologists and fellows. And they just basically told us he has to come off this machine. We don't think He's ready. So you need to prepare yourself for the worst. But the night came kind of um, what I would say the beautiful moment was the night he was taken off ECMO. And we had people literally around the world um, praying. And JP, I know you and Beth were some of those. And the doctor said, you need to prepare. The next 24 hours are crucial. And Steve, Travis's dad, um, he just sat there in that room with us because Travis and I were so such in shock that we could barely speak ourselves. And he just said, we hear what you're saying. You know, we understand what you're telling us, but we have, um, you know, saints around the world who are going to pray that this baby lives. And thank you so much. And at that point, everyone just ran out of the room to prep Bennett to, to bring him off this ECMO machine. Do you want to share, you know, kind of what you've always said of just days of great, you know, I think just great um, uncertainty and fear, you know, was just a sense of, being overwhelmed, I think with that, uh, you're wanting to be a first time parent and, uh, you are a first time parent. It's just not the way you anticipated it. And, um, yeah, it was just, um, you're just thrown into a, an experience that you're not ready for, um, at all. Nothing, nothing really prepares you for that kind of an experience. And so you just find yourself in the middle of it and try to manage it the best you can on a day by day uh, basis. Um, yeah. remember that night. Because um, there were prayer vigils all over the country, probably the world. And I think on whatever one I was on, I think I had like the 3 to 3.30 shift or something like that. And I remember my alarm going off and getting up and praying, but not knowing. So there was definitely this sense that you guys might lose him. We might lose him. So walk us through the joy of him surviving, but then the coming awareness of what his life was going to look like. Sure. Yeah. You know, I think um, he made it through the first 12 hours. He made it through the, the first 24 hours and we were just elated. I mean, at that point, we'd become very close with the nurses, everyone in the NICU. And we were all just walking around on eggshells, but, you know, cautiously optimistic. And then, um, you know, this is what I would say was kind of the miracle day was about 40 hours into it. 
we showed up on a Sunday morning. You know, at this point, we had been glued to the NICU. So we had not attended a church service. We, there had been in-person, you know, prayer vigils that we had not even attended because we just couldn't leave his side. And so it was a Sunday morning and we came in and I remember everyone's faces were bright and you got to come here, you got to come here. And we were just like, what? Is everything okay? Everything's more than okay. And they're like, we don't know what happened, but his lungs just opened up his, I mean, his lungs just opened up. There's no medical explanation and we're, cause at this point he was on this jet ventilator. That was the only thing he breathing for him. And um, they were like, we're ready to turn this ventilator off. You know, this baby, you know, the lungs had finally started to heal and, and kind of turn the corner that we had been waiting on. And so, you know, it was just, just joyous, you know, he number one, he had survived coming off ECMO. Now he's just like, the lungs have opened up. We just felt the power of God and answered all of these prayers. And we have a picture of me turning off the jet ventilator. And it was just, everyone was celebrating, even these, you know, neonatologists who many of them probably aren't even believers. But anyway, so then at that point, it's just jubilation, jubilation, then it's living, then it's doing great. And, and, um, as you know, JP, you know, the, the Bible and the, the number 40 is a very significant number of the Bible. Obviously, it rained for 40 days, 40 nights with Noah. And um, anyway, on day 40, they said, you know, we do need to do just this routine MRI. You know, if we do this for all babies who come off ECMO, you know, he's doing awesome. At this point, we're heading towards, you know, the plan to get him home. Let's just do this MRI before we extubate him. So at this point, he had had a, a tube down his throat breathing for him this whole time. And so we were like, okay. Um, and we knew there had been a little bit of possible seizure activity early on, like there had been some, some, some uncertainties, but basically after that day, after um, the MRI, we were called in to meet with um, the neonatologist and, um, and the neurologist who didn't have the most wonderful bedside manner and um, just sat us down and laid out that Bennett had experienced a severe oxygen depletion that last day of ECMO and his brain had not gotten enough oxygen and there had been significant brain damage. And, you know, the terms cerebral palsy were used, you know, may never walk, may never talk, you know, just kind of all of these devastating phrases were kind of thrown at us. And, and, and yeah, it, it was like being hit by a bulldozer because we, our baby had lived and yet now um, the future was full of just uncertainty. And so, yeah, I think we went home and just kind of quiet that day and um, just started begin that processing and grief process of he's alive and yet his future may look a lot different. He may not get to play basketball with his dad. He may not get to learn to ride a bike, you know, just things that we had, um, yeah, that you get, that you do as new parents looking ahead with your first child. So. JP, you said this in the intro, but this is kind of a roller coaster of a story. There's there's beauty and anticipation in the birth of a child, and then all of a sudden there's tragedy mm-hmm. and it turns a corner and Travis is following his newborn son in an ambulance to another hospital. Yeah. Kelly has no idea what's going on. And then they go through all of the process of, of ECMO and mm-hmm. Bennett being on a ventilator and then there's joy again. He's coming off the ECMO. He's coming yeah. off the ventilator. Things are, are going to be good. And then another sudden shift mm-hmm. in that, oh, cerebral palsy is now in the vocabulary. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's a part of the picture. And man, what does a, a community do with that sort of traumatic roller coaster trajectory? 
how does a community respond to that? How does a community handle suffering? There's there's so many different people from that we're hearing from this story that were involved in helping the specs process all of this. I love the story they told about Trav's dad telling the doctors, I, I want you to know we have saints around the world that are going to pray that this young boy lives. Mm. And what I find so beautiful about that is he didn't guarantee an outcome, but yet he acknowledged that there was something going on above and beyond the physical. And when I've had suffering in my own life and when I've had suffering in various communities, you know, the, the church community, the family community, extended family community, you kind of feel pulled into two directions. You know, there's a part of you that has, has the doubt um, where is God in this? Maybe I was wrong about God. Why would God do this type of thing? But then the other side of you that wants to say, well, God exists, and I know exactly what God is going to do, and God is, I know 100% definitively God is going to bring healing. And it's really challenging to kind of sit in that middle space and say, I believe God is still with us, and I believe God is good, but I don't know what's going to happen. But I'm just going to sit in that and wait for God to show up. And Watching them do that for all the years they've done that has been very formative for me. Yeah, you were talking in the interview about how you and many other people were engaged in these prayer vigils and processing the suffering that's going on. Mm -hmm. Kelly and Travis aren't the only ones that are doing that processing. It's those that love Kelly and Travis, that love the Speck family, that are also dealing with Mm -hmm. some sort of suffering. Uh, You were talking about how whether or not you realized you said this, you said you were dealing with the fact that you guys might lose him, we might lose him. Mm-hmm. And when you said we might lose him, it it shifted something in my heart to where I'm thinking, Bennett was not just this child in a circumstance of a family that's in our circle. It's mm-hmm. that Bennett was a part of our circle, a part of our community. And at that point, they didn't know whether cerebral palsy was the diagnosis or anything but it it just makes me wonder how often do we consider people who are in these circumstances families who have children with special needs or people with special needs themselves how often do we consider that they are a part of our community Mm -hmm. they are very much a part of our world they're a part of the stories that we tell ourselves and and the stories that we live it's just a reminder that that we're all in this Mm -hmm. together and we all engage in suffering and rejoicing together so it just makes me think whenever i see somebody with special needs in a community or a family with a child with special needs what's my response to that yeah is it man that's really hard and then i don't engage in it anymore or is it man that's really hard how can i help that family how can i engage in life with that family how can i help them to know that they're a part of our community it speaks to the sanctity of life the value of every human life every human life created in the image of god and it took, sadly for me, and I confess this, but it took my best friend being in this situation for me to really start seeing some of these questions and seeing some of these folks on the margins. And now when I'm in the grocery store, when I'm out and about, I'm just so much more aware of it because my best friend went through it. And they're not them, they're us, you know, that type of thing. So the story continues here as, as Travis talks about kind of his journey with this and as he wrestled with this, asking some of these big questions and kind of the ups and downs of walking through this.
So Travis, walk us through, I mean, you go through the traumatic experience of, of your firstborn almost dies in the hospital when up to that point, everything had been healthy in the pregnancy. He almost dies, but then he doesn't die. But then there's this, now there's this adaptation that his life is not going to look the way we thought it lived. So there's, there's a ton of ups and downs to the story. Walk us through the ways that this shaped you. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I do remember one of the things that really stands out to me is, is being um, in the car right behind uh, the ambulance as we were uh, transferring Bennett from one hospital here in Washington to the Georgetown NICU, which is where he would stay a long time. And, you know, I was just following behind that ambulance. You know, I remember just thinking to myself, it's all changing today. And I had no idea what that meant. I had no idea, you know, what that was going to look like. Um, but there's no question that I knew it was all changing at that moment. And, you know, for me personally, you know, the whole thing was, was absolutely devastating. I was not prepared. <laughs> I was not prepared for this experience. I was not prepared for this to happen. Uh, I don't think anything can prepare you. You're just thrown into this kind of thing. I was overwhelmed, I think, by the pain and the grief of the experience. You know, I had a uh, great, uh, great fear as a result of this, almost incapacitated by fear um, early on. You just get really, really scared when something like this happens and you're not really sure what to do. But yeah, for me, for me personally, it began a, uh, a whole uh, journey down a path that I had uh, no idea was going was going to happen. Mental health became a big concern for me uh, early on. This event caused a lot of depression. It caused a lot of uh, anxiety. You know, you're just basically just overwhelmed by it. You're just overwhelmed by it all. And, uh, you know, so there, there was a lot of impacts on me. It started this long path uh, of what I would probably call just death of, you know, death of my old self at the time. I really think there was a there was a pre-Bennett Travis, and then there's a post-Bennett Travis. And I'm not exactly sure what the, what the full post-Bennett Travis is going to look like. I think that's still happening. <laughs> but there's no, there's no doubt that there was a pre-Bennett Travis. And, and, and this happening, Bennett, early on, was it really was a mortal wound, as I like to say. It was a mortal wound. It was a death blow you know, to who I was uh, in terms of how I approached life, not the not the person I was, but just my, my general approaches to life. I was, um, I would say I was a, a stoic. I would say I was uh, a perfectionist. I was uh, prideful. I was uh, very uh, controlling. And uh, I would definitely say that I still have some aspects of those, of those attributes in my life, but not near to the degree that they were as a result of the last you know, 12 years or so, especially early on. So when you go through this experience, you know, when so much is outside of your control, how does one cope with a loss of that degree? You know, because there was some tangible losses in the moment, but there's also a buddy of mine introduced this phrase to me recently, this phrase, ambiguous loss. Like, because you didn't, you didn't know what Bennett's life was going to look like. But you didn't anticipate it was going to be this. You know, I think back to that sermon by Lon Solomon you had me listen to where it was you start to grieve. They're not going to play high school basketball. They're not going to walk down the aisle and get married. They're not going to do this or this or this. And this sense of you're, you're grieving that loss. So 
how did you cope with that and adjust to, as you say, kind of the new situation, which brings about kind of the new you? Yeah, I, I definitely did not um, adjust and cope in a healthy way, um, especially early on. Uh, along a little, uh, uh, probably a, a few years prior to Bennett being uh, born, I started to experience these really uh, bad uh, migraine headaches. And, uh, and those migraines have still continued actually today, but they're not near to the degree they were. But I started to get all these bad migraines. I would uh, get a lot of uh, heavy uh, pain medication for these, these migraines, but I never really took, took that, that medication. After Bennett was born um, and I had really just emotional pain more than just physical pain, uh, I really started to you know, abuse, uh, abuse that medication. And that really started a spiral for me, um, it, it was, I just did not cope in a healthy way. Um, and so for the next couple of years, I really uh, became really, I started to abuse that medication a lot. That, that, that medication was really the only way I knew how to cope with this new reality. So it was not a very healthy way to cope. And that led to uh, you know a lot of severe depression and anxiety. And so for me personally, uh, you know, that ended in a, a really bad hospitalization uh, at one point, and then in a, a, a month-long stay at a, at a rehabilitation facility. You know, at that, at that point, um, I knew that older, that older uh, self of Travis was definitely, um, was definitely gone, uh, and a new one would be coming up. And what that necessarily looks like, I'm still not sure, but I do know that that old you know, the old approach to life was, was dealt multiple mortal wounds and it, you know, it just didn't, it wasn't going to work. So I coped, I coped really, really poorly. Um, and it, it just led to all kinds of problems, you know, uh, mentally, physically, spiritually, I would say. And the event you're describing, this is a decade ago or. Yeah, this is about, yeah, this is a, this was about 12 years ago. So Bennett was born in 2007 and this was all really happening 2009 well it really happened from about 2007 to about 2010 the really difficult part of it uh there was a three-year stretch early on that that was really consumed by by the abuse of the medication um by the uh, uh by the mental health um concerns and depression uh, anxiety and so I, I do remember thinking early on, though, questions about this kind of thing, questions about what happened to Bennett and anybody going through something like this. Questions are just normal part of being human. Why did this happen? Uh, you know, how you know, could could God allow something like this? Why did God allow this to happen? And I've always thought that the questions are important and normal, but I've also thought to myself that the questions tend not to be particularly helpful because you don't get answers to those questions all the time. There isn't really a, a standard answer to why this happens or how this happens. Um, how could God, a loving God, allow something like this to happen you know, to Bennett? And so, uh, but what, I, what I've come to sense, uh, what I've come to believe uh, is that, you know, the real question is, is more to the degree of, okay, this happened. So are you going to choose to believe in me still as a result of this and are you going to choose to still trust me as a result of this you have said you believed in me your whole life well are you still going to choose that 
-hmm. you know, and are you going to allow me, you know, to guide you and, and, and take you down, down this path, even though you know not where you're going, will you choose to stay with me in this? And I think that's been, that's been a broader question, at least for me as a, as a, as a, as a husband, as a father, uh, that's been this overriding question you know, to me that it's, it's, a, it's a constant question. It's a daily question. Are you going to choose me um, as a result of this or not? You know, Kelly and I's answer to that has, has I think has always just been, it, it's always been yes. There's never been a thought about saying no to that. Uh, there's never been a thought about saying that I can, we can do this without him, without his people. I appreciate Travis's vulnerability and authenticity in all this. Because Drew, as I told you, I, I walked alongside him in parts of this. I remember visiting him when he was in that 30-day stay at the rehabilitation experience. And I remember, because I had watched the decline, I had, had watched that while I didn't really understand all that was going on. And then when I saw him a few weeks in his stay at the rehabilitation facility, his eyes were different. Hmm. And so when he talks about, the old Travis, the new Travis, or the the pre-Bennett Travis, the post-Bennett Travis, like I started to see something, something's happening, like something new is happening. You know, it reminds me of Paul in Romans 5 when he says, suffering leads to perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. And to me, that that's the progression of the story they're telling. And Travis has become a person of greater depth, a person of greater compassion. And, and that the empathy he now has for people is, is contagious because I find myself, you know, we, we talked a lot as a society the last decade or so about, about opioid addiction, prescription drug abuse. Mm -hmm. And Drew, I confess, I think I used to think those, those people out there yeah, struggle with that type of thing. It could never get close to home for me. But I understand how it happened to my best friend because like the slow, he had migraines and he was going through trauma. And, but what that did for me, because if I have empathy to him, then I can have empathy to other people. Yeah. And it's made me say, you know, we talked about the truth that Bennett is an image bearer and the value of that. But also people that are struggling with all kinds of addictions, whether it's whether it's an addiction where I'm like, I can see how that would happen, or an addiction where I say, I don't understand that. Either way, they're all creating the image of God. Yeah. And the beauty of that. Yeah. And I love that he talked about, we were faced with this question of what we've said our whole life about faith and who we know Jesus to be. That comes into question. I can see why it would come into question because you're you're asking how could this ever happen to somebody who's choosing to serve a God who is supposedly faithful and good and is making all things new and but this happens in your life. And he said they were faced with that question, but they never were prepared to give it up. Mm -hmm. And a part of the reason they weren't prepared to give it up was because of the community that they found themselves in. Yeah. And they said we cannot give that up. And so a lot of us listening to this are probably saying, how can I walk with people that are going through these type of experiences? Hmm. And that's really where, where Kelly takes it in the next part of the interview. Kelly begins here by talking about Jill's House, which is a nonprofit in the Northern Virginia area that provides respite care for families of special needs children. 
they've expanded to other parts of the country. They even have a location, Drew, here in Nashville that our church has done some volunteer work with. It's really an exceptional program. And then she's also going to talk about some ministries they have encountered through local churches in, in Northern Virginia. And then she'll wrap up talking a little bit about her book. And then I think coming back to Washington, we moved there and came back to the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, we started to go to a church there called McLean Bible Church. So for about three years after Bennett was born, we never attended the services because we couldn't. So they had uh, a ministry for, for families with special needs children at, at their church called Access Ministry. And I think that's probably the first time, for the first time in three years uh, since we had Bennett, that was the first time we ever went to a, a, a worship service together. Um, but in 2010, we finally could uh, because of McLean. So <clears throat> uh, so the access ministry there was was wonderful, a wonderful uh, ministry. And then where we felt, you know, really, really, I think just identified with, I guess, and supported in the way we never knew existed. And then a few years later, Bennett got a little bit older and, and started to attend a place called Jill's House, which is associated kind of with the McLean church in that area. And you know, he just he goes there every few weekends. Yeah, Jill's house is unique. It's kind of the first in the country. They provide respite to families with kids with disabilities. So, you know, the data is like 80 to 90 percent of marriages, either you know, are ending in divorce with kids with special needs because it is obviously such a stress and strain and so much time is poured into those kids. So Jill's house is a place that for the weekend you drop your kid off for 48 hours and then you can either spend time with your spouse. The other typical kids go on a quick weekend trip. And it, 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 I mean, it was, it's been transformative to us and families in the DC area. And they've since um, expanded across the country. And I know JP has been involved with the one in Nashville and there's one in Washington state and they're, they're, they're growing um, at a rapid pace, which is really beautiful because people are realizing, wow, like let's support both these special beautiful kids as well as their their families and uh, it's anyone can go you don't have to be a christian you can be any faith you can be any background and they just say hey can you bring your kid here and let us love on them and then can you guys as a family go spend time together and so that's been been a socket um that's been a huge blessing to us and even our kids and our typical our two typical kids even get involved they have typical night where the where the typical kids of the siblings get to go and eat pizza and play together with other siblings who kind of get it you know have a little discussion like hey how does it feel when you're at a restaurant and your brother you know screams really loud and everyone looks at you you know and just kind of and it's been a huge sense of support to our typical kids who they have unique stresses as well you know and, and we Kind of are always trying to tap into that, but it's it's also nice for someone outside of the family to to give them some attention. So we've been really blessed by Joel's house. Well, me being friends with you guys and just kind of seeing you go through this experience, like I remember talking to Travis once years ago and realizing, oh, they haven't sat in a worship service together in years, just yeah. because one of them always has to be with Bennett. And you know, I've been in ministry for a long time, and I've seen all types of children's church and drop your kids off. But obviously, if it's a kid with special needs, you really can't do it that easily. So you talk about McLean Bible Church had this access ministry. Like walk me through what what did that look like? Was it just a random volunteer that watched Bennett? You know, no, I, I mean, don't anticipate it was. So like what, what level was this? Well, the level was pretty high. I mean, they basically would have trained 
volunteers, you know, who as well, I mean, a nurse, a nurse on staff, or at least a nurse to look over. So you would obviously have to reach out, apply, just being like, give the information. If they have a seizure, here's what it looks like. If they have, you know, just kind of to give the medical background, someone to receive that. And then really just um, committed volunteers who, you know, they had multiple services at that point. So they'd have a crew that would do the Saturday night kids and a crew that would do the 930 Sunday morning. And I mean, we were blown away. It's like these people were just too good to be true in a way. And they're always there every week with a smile on their face, you know, let us take him, you know, and just take him from our hands so we could go to church. And I mean, during that time, it it was just a time of restoration really for us. You know, we a lot of times would go to the Saturday night service because it just worked better with nap schedules and three crazy kids. And you know, we'd sit there, just the two of us, um, you know, hearing the preaching from Lon Solomon, like Travis mentioned, and we could just, Lon had a really unique gift of, of preaching the word and obviously being a parent of a, an, an adult with disabilities at that point. It's like almost everything he said was just like honey to our soul. And it just we could just resonate with us and worship. And yeah, I mean, it was just, I feel like those years were just a time that the Lord really, really, really brought some healing to kind of crevices of our heart that just had had some dryness. Yeah. Some, some, some dry bones. Um, and so, um, so then the, the months turned to years of hospitalizations, you know, just a medically fragile child with, with, a, um, with a significant diagnosis of cerebral palsy. And, um, you know, since then it's just been ups and downs of hospitalizations, surgeries, um, joys of he gets to go to school, he um, got happy. He stopped screaming, although he's still very feisty. And, um, you know, what it looks like today is a really full life. Bennett loves his house. He loves his school. He loves his people who he knows. Um, but he prefers to be home. And we have two other very active elementary age kids and, and who are becoming more and more active and more social by the day. And so we're kind of figuring out a new dance of how to do life that honors Bennett and as well as honoring the little two. And then obviously making our marriage a priority um, and just finding, as we've come out, coming out of the fog, finding time to um, reinvest in friendships, our faith community, just kind of our, our head is coming out of the sand, I would say. And so that's um, the opportunity to write this book came and we, we know this is a special story, but it's also um, unique in the way, yeah, that it doesn't end with a fairytale ending, tie it up in a bow. It, we're still along this wild ride. Mm-hmm. I love that summary. And I love <clears> the title <throat> of the book, Hope and the Heartache. And uh, the cover is beautiful cover. What a gorgeous family picture. As people read this, what are the two or three things you really hope people take away from it? Uh, whether you're a believer in Christ or you're a believer in something else, you know, our, it is our hope um, because Bennett has brought because of him, we have had so many different types of people come into our life, all faiths, all races, all worldviews, you name it. And I and um, we want them all to read this book because we we want them to know that in, in their darkest moments or if they're following alongside of someone in their darkest moment, if they're caring for someone or being cared for themselves, that there is always hope. There is There are good people who will come into your life. There is a strength that is within them and, you know, in the darkest of night and the lowest of moments that there is a reason to press forward because as we've learned what, when it has felt the worst of the worst, those moments are chapters. They're, they're not the end of the story. And I think a friend once told me that, you know, this, this is, the story does not end here. And that gave me a lot of hope because at times when things seem so dark and hopeless, <laughs> 
drawing on the strength that there is hope is, is, is what's gotten us through. And so um, obviously for us, that hope is Jesus. But I, I do, it really, we just hope this is an encouragement to the world. You know, JP, this hearing this conversation sparks a question in me of what can I do to help families in this situation? And, and my initial reaction to say, I don't know that I can do much to help this situation, but I maybe there's something I can do. Maybe it's provide a meal or, you mm. know, I'm, I can't take their child or their mm. sibling or, or some someone in their family for a whole weekend or an extended amount of time, but maybe there's something small I could do. So it's asking this question of what can I do to help families in yeah. this situation? I think for churches, one of the things I've been wrestling with for a decade, predominantly because of their experience, but also some few other experiences I've been involved in is are our churches hospitable spaces for these families? Yeah. So everything from, is it easy to get in and out of our buildings? Mm. Yeah. Um, we had to go through some experiences at our church where like, you know, how about how about kids with autism? How about kids with backgrounds of trauma? The way we're doing our classes, the way we're doing our activities, is this fitting for these families? Or even kids with some other situations. I'm always impressed to hear Travis and Kelly's experience with some of these really amazing ministries at some of these large churches. I'm I'm not at a church of that size with that resources, but I tell you I have learned to know what are the churches that have those resources here in town. Cause my church can't do some of those things because of our size, but I know those churches, So I frequently will have conversations and say, Hey, do they know about this church over here? Because they are really good at serving this population. And then this church over here is really good at serving this population. I don't think any one congregation can do it alone. That's why we need each other. And I think if any one congregation tries to do it on their own, you'll end up with a very thin attempt to try to meet all these needs, and then it ends up not being as effective as it could be. And to me, it speaks to the global impact of the church when mm-hmm. we realize that the church is a lot bigger than just a one single congregation. That one single congregation, that one iteration of the body of Christ, can do so much for that community, but what happens when all of the churches across the world, when you look at the church as a whole, mm-hmm that's where you begin to see the impact that it has on the world. You've said in your book and you said on the podcast that the church might be the greatest social movement to ever exist. Yes. And I think that when we, when we look at that, we go, but is my one church actually the greatest social (laughs) impact on, on, in the history of the world? It's like, well, no, it's not. It's, it's, (laughs) it's the church as a whole. It's all of us together. Yeah. Yeah. It's all of us together. And, and some of these stories are hard. And some of these stories may seem like they have no solution. You know, and we've talked about poverty and singleness and now special needs. And we may say, I don't have a response to all this. And yet what we keep finding out, Drew, when we delve into these stories, there's an amazing amount of hope yeah. that comes up with this. And that's what I love about Kelly and Travis's story. And I'm excited to spend more time with their new book because, as Kelly says, there is hope in the heartache. And Drew, as we continue to come out of COVID and all that the world has done the last few years, is there a greater message than that? Hmm. Yeah, I think we're all looking for hope in heartache, whatever that heartache is that we carry, whether it's tied to something as unique as having a special needs child or member of your family, 
Uh, that could be heartache. Your heartache could just be grief. Mm-hmm. Your heartache could just be the world not looking like it did before COVID. Yeah. We all need some of that hope in the heartache and where people can readily find some of that hope mm-hmm. is in the church. Amen.